Verse 19 says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he coming after me who is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethbara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And Father, we ask this morning that as we open your word, that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to have hearts that are open and minds that are open, that we might hear what you would say to us by your voice speaking to our hearts this day, even as you spoke to those in that day, to John the Baptist, to others. Lord, we pray that as a God who shows no partiality, that you would speak to us today, that each one of us would know that we heard the voice of the living God say to us something that you wanted us to hear. So Lord, prepare us in a way we can't prepare ourselves. Help us. We want to continue to worship now by submitting our attention to your word and giving you the best, Lord, loving you with our heart, our soul, our mind and strength by giving you a chance to speak to us now through your word. Bless your word and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, it's pretty obvious in an election year, which we are now once again in, that the candidates, of course, are greatly concerned about getting this thing that they call endorsements. Basically looking for certain special people to identify them or indicate that they're important in some sense, to say something good about them by endorsing them. And, you know, to an extent, quite honestly, I rise it's part of the process. I honestly think that every human being, to some extent, yearns for some level of endorsement. I think everybody yearns for some level of approval. I guess the important question to ask in light of that is whose endorsement really matters to you most? Whose endorsement on this earth and in this life do you really care about the most? Well, when the Lord Jesus, who I would say is 
probably pretty important. I think he ranks probably above all else. When he was asked about the man John the Baptist who we're reading about here, John was identified or could say endorsed by Jesus as a great man. In fact, let me read you the words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this regarding John the Baptist. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen none greater than John the Baptist. Now, I wrote there, wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive to think that God in flesh was on this planet, the son Jesus Christ, and Jesus endorsed this man, John the Baptist, keep in mind, who never did one miracle. Oh, that makes somebody great. They have the power to work miracles. John never did one miracle. He never did one sign. The Bible testifies of that. But yet John the Baptist was endorsed by Jesus as the greatest man who had ever been born of women. That's pretty insightful to think about. That should cause us to wonder, so what was it about John that would earn him such a high compliment an endorsement from our Lord Jesus when he was here. This section gives us one part, not the full account, but one part of the life and the ministry of this man, John the Baptist. And considering Jesus called him a great man, I think that's worthy of consideration. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to sort of see, well, wow, what really does matter to our Lord? What really would cause our Lord to say that is a mark of greatness and what does he consider greatness? Because that's what I want to pursue. And I would think that you would want to pursue the same thing as well. So we find a few aspects here we can identify in this section about John's life. I don't think it's exhaustive, we can say, of everything we could identify about why Jesus labeled him as a great man. But what we do see is helpful. In fact, a couple things I want to draw to your attention by way of you know, maybe just some, some points we can take note of as we go through this section. In verse 19 through 21, we see, first of all, that John was a person of honesty and integrity. He was a person of honesty and integrity. Secondly, we'll see in verse 22 through 23 that John was a person of the Scripture. And he was a biblical man, a person of the Scripture. Thirdly, then in verse 24 to 28, we'll see that John was a person of humility. Fourthly, we'll see then in verse 29, as he makes that great declaration, that John was a person who exalted Jesus and he pointed people to Jesus. That was the characterizing mark of this man's life. He was a yield sign and he pointed people to Jesus. That was what his life was marked by. And finally, we'll see then in verses 30 through 34 that John also was a man who was spiritually sensitive and he listened to God. You could also, I think, say the same thing in summary this way, that John was upright and honest, he was biblical, he was humble, he was Christ-centered, and he was spirit-led. He was honest and upright, biblical, humble, Christ-centered, and spirit-led. Well, let's look at the account here beginning in the 19th verse. Pick it up with me. He says, now this is the testimony of John the Baptist we're talking about, when the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So again, the gospel records give to us, all four gospels, sort of uh, the record of this man, John, showing us very clearly that this man, John the Baptist, was selected by God before his birth 
and basically ordained to be sent ahead of the ministry of Jesus Christ to prepare people to recognize who Jesus was and to then, of course, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel accounts, fill in some details regarding the unique birth of John the Baptist, the godly parents that he had, and even the special upbringing that was given to him to sort of set him apart for this destiny that God had as a plan for his life. Listen to what Luke says in chapter 1. It records there this prophetic word the angel was giving to John the Baptist's father, describing John. And the angel said to John's father, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, a short time before the public ministry of Jesus starts, John the Baptist, it seems, hears from God word that this preparatory ministry that he was destined to perform is now time to come to pass. So John then comes on the public scene we see right prior to the ministry of Jesus and he begins to call people to get ready spiritually and to begin to look for what is about to come to pass. We read in Mark chapter 1 verse 4 that John came baptizing in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or the removal of sins. And the Bible says that what John was declaring was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John was saying, turn away, turn around, if you would, from how you've been living and get prepared because the kingdom of God is now close. It's at hand. And he was seeking to get people ready for that. Matthew 3 says that John was declaring as well, I indeed baptize with water under repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals are not worthy to carry, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And as the Spirit of God started moving through the ministry of this man, John the Baptist, prior to Christ, multitudes, the Bible show us, were coming out to John in the wilderness. Crowds were just flocking out to the Jordan River to hear John's preaching. Uh, many were confessing their sins tax collectors, Roman soldiers, even religious leaders, people were repenting from their sin and they were accepting this water baptism that John was performing by submitting to it to identify their desire and choice to repent from sin and to become right with God. Luke 3 tells us this, the people were in expectation and all were reasoning in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ, the Messiah, or not. Because of this incredible stir and the evident power of the Spirit of God working through this man, John, and the ministry unfolding and crowds just gathering together and people were confessing sin and repenting and showing that they wanted to get right with God. In essence, there was an awakening spiritually happening. People were starting to wonder who John really was. Who is this guy? What is this going on? And perhaps is this perhaps the Christ that, that Jehovah God said was coming. Is this the Messiah? Is this maybe the predicted Savior who was to come? And they were asking searching questions. And that is what is the backdrop as we pick up our account now this morning 
Uh, they're searching for answers about John the Baptist. That's why we read here in verse 19, the testimony of John at this time when it says, notice, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? To get an answer from him, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem, we know, is sort of the spiritual capital of the nation. It's where the temple of God were. It was sort of the headquarters, spiritually, if you would, of the worship life of God's people in that day. The Levites and the priests, mentioned here in verse 19, we know, uh, are the, the established representative of the religious leaders in that day in Israel. So these individuals, the religious leaders who have spiritual authority, they supposedly have the credibility of the things of God. They're now sent on this mission, notice, to sort of interrogate John the Baptist, to interview him, not privately, but quite publicly it happens, the Bible shows us. And they're sent on mission to find out and get some answers and clarity. Who is this man who seems to be so powerful and influential and the Spirit of God seems to just be moving through his life in such a way? So they come to John and say to him, Who are you? Look, he answers, verse 20, He confessed and did not deny, it says, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Again, notice the language there. Emphasizing, John does purposely what he does not to leave any room for question or doubt here. John flatly denies any wrong impressions that obviously were beginning to develop and admits the truth openly, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah that God predicted to come. John's basically saying, please do not look at me as the Savior. And please don't look at me as a Savior, he says, for that is not what I am. The questioning goes on, verse 21, and they asked him, saying, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, verse 21, I am not. Now, are you Elijah's? Because Malachi chapter 4, hundreds of years prior to this time, had prophesied that before the coming of the great day of the Lord, that Elijah, remember from the Old Testament, who had disappeared while still alive in this seeming whirlwind experience, it seems he's taken up to heaven while still alive and disappears. It was prophesied in Malachi 4 that Elijah would return back to the earth and turn people's hearts back towards what's right. So there was this expectation that Elijah would come before the Christ and John seemed in many ways to be like Elijah in his appearance, certainly physically, as well as his style of ministry. The Bible even says he was operating in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So they were curious. Well, are you Elijah? Is that who you are? Are you the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4? John again denied, I am not. They go on, verse 21, to say, well, are you the prophet? Notice, not a prophet, the prophet. And he answered, nope, not that, not that either. Now, the reason they ask, are you the prophet? That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where God spoke there through Moses of raising up a prophetic leader for Israel that the Bible says would be like Moses, but yet greater than Moses to come and rule the people. Deuteronomy 18 records there that God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, who, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words 
which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So again, there was this expectation that this prophet like Moses, but greater would come. And that's what they're asking here as well. Are you the prophet that Moses predicted? Again, they inquired. And John again, honestly said, nope, I'm not that guy either. Now, I want you to think about this. All three of those identities or titles, that'd be pretty appealing to be the Christ or to be Elijah, this man come back from heaven, or to be the prophet like unto Moses. Those are all pretty appealing titles and identities to have. Yet John being, what I said, a man of integrity in his character and being a man of honesty and uprightness does not give in to that fleshly temptation, but spoke forth the truth in all these matters as he was being asked. In a sense, you could say at a time when there was pretty great pressure upon him as a human being like you and I and a temptation to maybe take to himself otherwise a little more glory than what he had going currently to be the Christ or the prophet or to be Elijah having come back. John proves his character in the midst of the moment by being marked by honesty and integrity by every time he's being asked, is this who you are? You seem, He said, no, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. John knew who he was. And again, this honesty, integrity by how he handles all things is one part of what made John, as I said, great in the eyes of Jesus. It was one of the things from Jesus' perspective that made him a great man, that he was a man of honesty. He was a man of simple integrity. And I think for you and I this morning, we should seek to be people to greater and greater degrees of honesty and integrity in our lives and, and in how we handle things and in how we speak to people and, and in our character, that our characters would be marked by the God that we represent. Jesus said that I am the truth. And as Jesus lives in you and lives in me, that we would be people of truth, that we would speak the truth, that when we're answered or when we're asked questions, that our answers would be honest, that we would represent ourselves for who we are and not what we're not, and that we would be careful of temptation to try and be deceptive or deceitful in so many occasions when it's very easy to do that, but instead we would be people of integrity. That what we say, we would mean. And when we say we're going to do something, we would do it. And when we're asked questions, we would give honest answers. We would inflate things. We wouldn't twist things. But that we would just be people who are those of integrity, people who are honest. And I think as well as John was a witness to Jesus primarily, I think we should be like John, honest witnesses for Jesus in how we answer people's questions spiritually and, and that we should be people who hold to the integrity of the entire gospel message. That we tell people the truth about sin and hell and the reality of who Jesus is and why he had to die on the cross and what he did for us and that he is the only way to heaven and that we would hold to the integrity of the gospel message as we seek to be representatives for the Lord. So we see first that John was a man of integrity and honestly. Secondly, take note as our verses go on, verse 22 and 23, we see also, secondly, that John was a person of the scripture. Look, they are just almost beside themselves. They say to him, okay, you're not alive. You're not the Christ. You're not the prophet. Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Tell, okay, we give up. Tell us. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? That's always a searching question. What do you say about yourself? 
John answered, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So as the questions become more intense, John identifies who he is here finally. He identifies to him himself by quoting from the prophetic scripture found in Isaiah chapter 40. There we see in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John, take notice, saw his ministry calling and his life responsibility from simply looking at what the word of God said. From that prophecy there in Isaiah chapter 40 was how John identified who he was as a man and what his life purpose was. You could say from the scripture, John knew who he was. From the scripture, John knew what he was supposed to do with his life. His awareness of the Bible is how he found his life purpose. That was how he found direction for his life and began to understand and learn how to go about things in his life. That he was to be a voice speaking on God's behalf, what God wanted said. That his life calling and responsibility was to serve in a way to get people ready to walk in the way of the Lord, to help people be on the right path spiritually so they could meet Jesus and connect with Jesus and experience Jesus. And you could very clearly say that John knew and in a sense ordered his life and his decisions and his ministry by the word of God, by the scripture. It was his awareness and familiarity with the scripture and his willingness to believe and obey it personally that gave John a proper perspective on his life and who he was supposed to be and what he was not supposed to be and what mattered most. It's his familiarity with the scripture that helped John become, you could say, part of the great man that Jesus saw that he was and that he had become. And what a good reminder for us that we, like John, hopefully wanting to be seen great in the eyes of our Lord who evaluates us, that we would seek, like John, to be a people, a person individually of the Scripture. That we would let the Word of God be what orders our life. That we would let our familiarity and our awareness of what the Bible says and our willingness to obey what this says, not what the world says, or what our own ideas or feelings tell us, or how the patterns of the world do things, but that we would let the Word of God be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path and that our familiarity with this book would be the thing that tells us who we are and what we're not and what our life purpose is supposed to be and what matters most and you know that we would care more let me be very candid if more Christians cared about their Bible than they did social media I wonder what would happen to the church in some ways that's just a little relevant illustration but let's move on from there the word of God, that was what ordered this man's life. He was looking for direction, but when he looked for direction, apparently he found it in the Bible because when he stumbled on Isaiah 40, he said, that's who I am. That's God's will for my life. And look, I want to challenge you, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years, or you've been a Christian for two weeks, or whether you are married and 50 years old, or whether you're 15 years old, listen, this book will tell you how to live your life. Do you want to have a semi-decent life in a really rotten, messed up world? Order your life by being a person of the Word of God. 
Let it be the authority in your life and the chief priority in your life and it will show you how to lead your life and how to be fulfilling the roles that God intends for you in so many different ways. So John was a man of the scripture. Thirdly, we take note in verse 24 to 28 that John also was a man of humility. He was a man of humility. We see this in verse 24 and on. Look what it says to us. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, we know, were that elite religious group of religious leaders in Israel in Jesus' time period. They were an ultra-conservative, sort of strict, religiously devoted group of individuals who actually originally formed with very good intention to try and preserve the law of God and to keep the customs of Israel. They had a great intention when they began, but unfortunately, over time, to an extreme, they became a very legalistic sect of religious leaders who really began to care much more about keeping traditions and rituals and meticulous rules, which translated them into feeling more spiritual or appearing more holy. And they became a very self-righteous group of rule keepers. In many ways, they had ritual but they had lost reality in regards to the things of God. They were strict rule keepers, great routines and regulations they kept themselves to, but they had lost sense of a personal experience with God in their lives. And unfortunately, as religious leaders, they had put great burdens religiously upon the people leading them astray. And in that self-righteous attitude, they also became very, very jealous and insecure in regards to the popularity of Jesus' ministry and even John the Baptist's ministry, they were great antagonists because the crowds were flocking to them. Because people realized there was reality in what was happening through John's ministry because there was something genuine of the Spirit of God. And when Jesus came, that reality that people long for spiritually, the same way, people were being drawn to Christ and the religious leaders became great antagonists because of that. Verse 25 says, they ask John saying, why then, and notice here the the sense of jealousy behind it, why then do you baptize? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. In essence, what they're saying is, John, what do you think you're doing? They're questioning his authority. By what authority or right do you have to do what you're doing? Preaching as a voice for God. And baptizing people and spiritual commitments. See, the religious leaders in that day, understand, they would baptize Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They would baptize Gentiles who wanted to convert to following Israel's God. But John's baptizing Jews. And on top of that, he's baptizing some of the religious leaders and saying, you need to get right with God. (laughs) And so the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders... Uh, They're looking at this, and this is causing quite a stir, and they're thinking to themselves, look, wait a minute here. If you're not one of these special people, the Messiah himself or the prophet or Elijah, and if you don't have any official religious credentials or authority from what we hail from, uh, then then by whose authority are you doing what you're doing? What right do you think that you have to do this? And and what began to cause them to think as well is, you know, what are you trying to promote yourself? You trying to start some new religion? What are you trying to exalt yourself and get a special following? What's your motivation? What, why really are you doing this? That's what they're asking here. Well, verse 26, John answers their question or interrogation, whatever you want to call it. And John says to them, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. 
It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. So notice verse 26 and 27 here. John, as he answers, humbly indicates his low position, so inferior in comparison to the Lord Jesus. As he answers their question here, John indicates that his baptism, his water baptism, was only symbolic. It was only preparatory. It was to allow people to identify their hearts publicly, outwardly, and their commitment to want to repent of sin and to want to get right with God and to be prepared spiritually for what John was saying was coming that God was going to send. And here he humbly acknowledges, look, I'm not trying to start a new religion. I'm not trying to exalt myself. Rather, John says, quite honestly, it's the exact opposite. I'm just trying to awaken people to the one who is coming, to the one who is among us already, John says, who is far greater and superior to me that has not yet been recognized yet for who he is. Do you see they're referring to Jesus? He says, there stands one among you whom you do not know. This is who John wanted to lift up and help people come to know. It was this that was John's desire to point people towards Jesus. That's why he says in verse 27, it's he who's coming after me. That's preferred, that he is more, more important of higher rank, John saying, than me. And then he adds there, verse 27, look at it, whose sandal strap, referring to Jesus, I'm not worthy to lose. So John here refers to the lowest possible task of a slave in Israel in that day. One of the most humble acts that was known to untie the sandal strap of a Palestinian person in that day, in that Palestinian culture, that would be covered, their foot, with all types of dirt and other things that it probably wouldn't be nice to mention in church this morning. They wore sandals as they walked around with bare feet and as they would sweat in a Mideastern climate and as they would walk around with sweaty feet. If you've ever walked around with sweaty feet in a dusty, dirty environment, then that sweat accumulates, the, the dust and the dirt and everything else gets caked on your feet and gets pretty disgusting. It's pretty gross. Not to mention they didn't have nice plumbing like we did today, if you catch my drift. It went out the back door. So feet became pretty disgusting and pretty dirty and the lowest ranking slave would be the one who would unloose a sandal strap of a person's feet and would wash their feet to get that crud and that filth off of their feet as a way of blessing and serving a person. This was the epitome of humble service in that culture what John is referring to. And take note what John is saying there in verse 27. Don't overlook it. John does not say, I should unloose his sandal strap. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't even say, I'm willing to unloose his sandal strap. John says, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal strap. He doesn't say, I should do it because Jesus is so great. He doesn't say, you know, I'm willing to do it because he's so much greater than me. John says, I'm not even worthy or deserving to do the lowest task possible for Jesus. This is a declaration, a picture, and a display of great humility in a person that John, indeed, though a great man himself, as Jesus said, being used powerfully, he still humbly knew exactly who he was. And he had a proper perspective as a man, a healthy perspective on himself. And that deep humility that you see there in John the Baptist, his attitude, 
his actions, his speech, that is indeed one of the marks of greatness, I assure you, that Jesus saw in him as he looked at him as a person. And, and I can't help but by way of application say for us this morning, may we each seek to grow, and it is a growing experience, in this important, beautiful virtue of personal humility in all of our lives. For a few reasons, I'll tell you first and foremost, because humility is a very appealing and attractive thing to our God. You read the Bible and it teaches throughout that God loves finding humility in people. Isaiah 57 verse 15, listen to what God declares. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And then God adds this with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. So again, what does God say? I'm the high and lofty one. And he says, do you know who I like to hang out with? Humble people. People who have a humble spirit, a humble, contrite spirit. And he says, do you know who I love to revive? Hey, do you ever say, Lord, I, I just need spiritual revival in my life personally, Lord. God says, I revive the spirit of the humble. So God loves, God's attracted to humility. And we see in the Bible, as well as I think if we're honest and we just look around life, that when a person, please hear me, is rightly related to the Lord, when a person is rightly related to the Lord, as John was, humility will be one of the clear characterizing marks of their nature. It will be one of the very clear identifying marks in their temperament, in their perspective about themselves, in how they operate in all ways. It'll be obvious in how they act, how they function in life, and even, if so, I believe how they function in ministry as was the case with John the Baptist. And, and let's be clear here this morning. Humility is not self-deprecating talk. Christians are probably the biggest guilty people of, of a false pseudo form of humility by using self-deprecating talk to want to make themselves feel like they're humble or, or pretend like they're humble to other people. Look, self-deprecating talk is just putting verbal bait out to get people to give you compliments. Self-deprecating talk many times is just, it's just fishing for compliments. You know, there have been numerous times over the years where I've said this to my own you know, children as they're growing up. They'll be saying something. I say, stop fishing for a compliment. And, and, and self-deprecating, oh, I'm this woe is me. Look, I understand honest, humble. Humility in its essence is just an honest awareness of who you are. And you can say the truth about yourself without having to self-deprecate yourself and put yourself down and woes me and I'm, the, I'm horrible. It just, it's just, it's an, I am who I am and I'm okay with who I am. And just that honest awareness of who you are, especially in comparison to the Lord, is what genuine humility is. And when you have an honest awareness of who you are, especially in comparison to the Lord, as a result, quite honestly, uh, you're not impressed with yourself. You just begin to realize, you know, you're not seeking to be admired. You're not looking for any special attention. You're not looking to, well, in comparison to this group of people, I'm actually the special one in the group here, and this is my title, or, you know, this is what I can do. You just, you're not impressed. You don't feel any need for special attention. You recognize, you put on your pants the same way as everybody else, and you're just like everyone else, and you realize all the special attention, somebody does need that. It's Jesus. Because that's the only one is king of kings who rightly deserves it. And because of the fact that though he was king of kings, what was Jesus above all else? 
He was humble. He was a humble servant. Philippians 2 says, though he was God, he set aside reputation and he humbled himself and served. Listen to what the Bible says in a few different places regarding humility and the importance of it. Zephaniah 2 says, seek the Lord. And then it says, seek humility. Proverbs 15 and 18 both say, before honor is humility. The path to honor is humility, or sometimes before honor comes, we have to go through a little humility first and be humbled in our lives. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Peter, who certainly understood failure, putting his foot in his mouth, making prideful mistakes, Peter writes this at the end of his life. 1 Peter 5.5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, Submit yourselves to your elders. The idea is, again, submitting and respecting that those who are older than you have something to help you with. And recognizing that, that's a mark many times of humility in a young person, respect and appreciation for those older than them and what they have to share. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of my favorite Bible, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I always read that and think, you know what? I need a lot more grace and the last thing I want is God resisting me in my life. <laughs> There's a lot of things resisting me in my life and I'm resisting myself from doing The last thing I want is God going, yeah, go for it. Uh, just, yeah, go ahead, go for it. And just putting his hand on my little forehead and creating a little dust cloud like you see in the cartoon, you know, you're running full speed and God's just going, have at it. Yeah, go Run a little faster or whatnot. No, he's probably not that cynical. Look <laughs> how sinful I am. But that's what I envision. And it doesn't just say God won't allow us to move forward. It actually says God will resist us. That's powerful to me. It's one thing that it would say God won't let you go forward. It's a whole other thing when it says God will actually resist you. He'll work in opposition to you when we're prideful but yet God gives his grace he turns his hand the exact opposite way when we're humble and we have humility in our lives that's what the Bible is. and Peter says clothe yourself with humility that reminds me every day I get up and I have to put on humility Lord I, yeah I remember who I am again and just like you put a fresh set of clothes on that fresh awareness every day humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may lift you up he goes on verse 28 to tell us there these things were done in Beth Bara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Your Bible may translate that Bethany. It's another term for it near the Jordan where John was baptizing. And remember, it was during the baptism of John that Jesus himself also comes to be baptized by John. And when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, there John humbly acknowledges there as well Jesus' superiority even in that moment. Listen to the record of it. Matthew 3 says this, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. And John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? And Jesus answered, said, Permit it to be so now, for that is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him because Jesus told him that it was the right thing to do. But again, John recognizing the superiority of Jesus. And the events we're reading now in John's gospel are happening after the baptism of Jesus after that occasion there where John baptized Jesus himself. 
So as we go on now to verse 29, take notice, we'll see fourthly in verse 29, very clear that John exalted Jesus and pointed people to Jesus, another mark of his greatness. It says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he makes this incredible declaration of who Jesus is and what he had come to do. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the Jews, we know, were very familiar with lambs being offered in sacrifice to atone for and cover sin before a holy God. Their own law, Leviticus 17.11, says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God said, I have given it, the blood, to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So whether it was routine sin offerings that the people brought, whether it was the Passover feast or whether it was the Day of Atonement, the high day when they sought forgiveness for the sins of the nation once a year, lambs without any defect or spot or blemish, of course, symbolically, they were selected and then they were sacrificed. They were killed. They're, they're, they're dying as an innocent substitute for the guilty party. And the blood of the lamb that was innocent was shed in order to appease and satisfy God's holy wrath against sin to allow imperfect worshipers to be able to have fellowship with God and approach a holy God. And the Jews understood that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission or removal of sin and you could not approach a holy God. And again, that's what God prescribed. Why? Why? Because that's what God prescribed. He's God. And so if God said, I've given blood of the innocent to make atonement for the guilty as the way to have forgiveness and to be able to approach me, that was the way God prescribed it. And that was what they were accustomed to doing. They understood this whole concept. Now, that's why it's such a profound and powerful word picture for John. Imagine that day publicly to look over to Jesus or maybe point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As John pointed that day to Jesus, he was declaring that he was the final fulfillment of every lamb that had ever been selected or sacrificed before. That this was the selected chosen lamb that God himself was now providing, who was going to do something in such a way to be the final Passover lamb to remove sin, not just cover it, but to remove sin once for all so no other sacrifice would ever need be made again for sin. Again, Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It would just temporarily cover the sin of the people so that they could have, in a sense, right relationship with God. But notice Jesus' death and shed blood as the Lamb of God here was so perfect. It was so perfect in its effect and its power as the sinless lamb without any defect, his eternal blood that was shed as he came as a man. Look at the language there. Please do not miss. It says takes away the sin of the world. His blood takes away the sin of the world. Again, there's a big difference between something being covered and something being cleansed and taken away. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate lamb of God who died in our place as the innocent for us as the guilty, his shed blood takes away sin. Listen, if you're here this morning as a Christian and you've put your faith in Christ, just like me, there are things in your past 
There are things that you have done, thought, said, actions, mistakes that cause guilt and regret in the depth of your soul and you need to know if your faith is in the effective, powerful blood of Jesus Christ, that's not in your life anymore. It's taken away. It does not even exist anymore. A lot of times we think, well, yeah, thank goodness, at least it's, at least it's covered. Thank goodness, thank goodness it's covered. No, it's not covered. Covered is if you come over my house and we haven't cleaned and the tub is dirty, so I pull the shower curtain closed so you don't see the muck and the mildew behind it. My wife's an incredible cleaner. This is an illustration. I promise you. I, I'm serious. My wife is a very incredible cleaner. I'm actually the slob. Confession, truth be told. Covering is pull the shower curtain and the filth and the dirt is back there, but you just can't see it. That's covered cleansed is it's not there anymore it's been removed it's been taken away and listen in Jesus your sin has been taken away it's not there anymore it's been removed stop living like it's still a part of your life it's been removed the guilt the stain it's gone and if you're here this morning listen that's what you need the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin you need Jesus to take away your sin. That guilt, that regret that you have, the only person that can take that away is Jesus. And it says it was sufficient for the sin of the whole world. The whole world. Means there's nothing that anyone has ever done beyond its effect. And John was a person who pointed people to Jesus. And I see why now. <laughs> he pointed people to Jesus because of who Jesus was and what he could do. And again, as a mark of his greatness... That is what our life ambition ought to be, is to encourage people to look to Jesus and to tell people, listen, this is the greatest news happening. Look to Jesus. Don't look to me. Don't look to a church. That we would tell people, look, there is one who can do something regarding the biggest problem in your life, your own conscience and your guilt that makes you act the way you act or struggle with what you do. There is one who can take that away from you. It's Jesus. And to point people to Jesus as John did. Notice quickly, we need to wrap up here, as John here finally was one we see in our final verses who was spiritually sensitive and listened to the Lord. It goes on to say, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who's preferred before me. For he was before me. Again, John indicating that Jesus existed before he ever came on the scene. John was older chronologically. His ministry began first. We talked about this earlier. But John realized that in his incarnation, Jesus had left heaven where he always was as the eternal son of God, added humanity to his divinity in order to reveal God and provide salvation. And because John sensed that, he says, look, this is the one far superior to me. He says, verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So John indicates his own spiritual awareness of the purpose of his ministry. He says, quite honestly, I did not fully realize who he was at first myself, but I understood by the Holy Spirit's testimony to me that my ministry of water baptism was to set the stage for Jesus to be revealed to Israel for who he was. He admits that it was during the baptism of Jesus that it even all became clear to him because that's when John heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, John, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So John gives testimony of that experience when it all became clear to him 
In verse 32 through 34, he says, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. That's upon Jesus. And I did not know him, but it was he who sent me to baptize with water who had said to me, John, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said, and I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So notice, John here says that God had spoken to him in advance to Jesus' coming, telling him to go baptize with water. And apparently God had spoken to John and told him among all the water baptisms he was going to do in Israel, that one of those baptisms, one man's water baptism was going to be significantly different. You see what it says there? John says, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, John, this is the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, John, there's going to be one unique baptism among men when you baptize where you will see the Holy Spirit clearly come upon this man in a way unlike no one else and it will be unmistakable as my spirit rests and remains upon him identifying and authenticating this is the Son of God. This is the, the Savior, the promised Christ and he will be the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit immersing them into the spiritual reality of a full relationship with God. And God had told John, look for this one. Be looking for this one. That's why John, regarding Jesus, says there in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain upon him. And John says, that's why I knew, hey, this is exactly like God said. The Spirit came upon him and it rested upon him that's why John declares in the 34th verse, I have seen and testified, no question, this is the Son of God. And John knew beyond any shadow of a doubt. And again, that revelation of Jesus and that understanding that John came to, why did it happen? Because John was spiritually sensitive and because he listened to what God told him. He listened to the voice of God. So God showed him things and gave him revelation and he was effective in his ministry, which made another mark of greatness in John's life. And for you and I this morning, you know, when we be people who are spiritually sensitive, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, when he prompts us and listening to his still small voice, and be a people who listen to the voice of God. Look, John the Baptist is not exclusive. He's a man just like everybody else, and God wants to speak to you too. And just like God spoke to John the Baptist and he told him things, God wants to talk to you. Listen to his voice. Let him speak to you and be sensitive to his Holy Spirit. You know, we look at this man, John the Baptist, who the Bible puts a great picture of greatness in front of us. Again, he's upright. He's honest. He's biblical. He's Christ-centered. He's humble. He's spirit-led. And we go, man, love to see more of that in my life. But it doesn't seem like I can accomplish that on my own. Well, let me say this morning this. It won't come about by human efforts, but the Spirit of God can make you as a child of God what God intends for you to be. More humble, Spirit-led, Christ-centered, biblical, and that happens, look at verse 33, John says, how? Because Jesus is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Look, this morning it's as simple as this, looking to Jesus 
Whether it's looking to Jesus for salvation, to take away your sin as the Lamb of God and saying, Jesus, I want to be immersed. Just like a person goes in the water and they become fully immersed in the water, Jesus, I want what God has for me. Take away my sin. Baptize me with your spirit. Bring me into the family of God. Or whether as a Christian, you say, I need more humility in my life. I want to be more Christ-centered. I, I want to be more of a servant. I want to be more biblical, God. I, I, want to, I want to listen to your voice more. And I want to be more sensitive spiritually. Well, then you know what? If you're a Christian and you're already filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer. I would encourage you as a Christian. The Bible says, be ye being filled with the Spirit to say, Jesus, would you just baptize me afresh with your Spirit? And let Jesus do that in your life. Let's stand. Let's pray together.